Thank you, Barbara. Uh, I'm going to invite Philip up here. Um, Philip's going to preach from this psalm this morning. Um, Philip is, uh, the, I mean, is it Europe director? Director? He directs Europe. Um, <laughs> he, he's the European director for Acts 29, um, our, our network, the network we're p- part of. Um, but Philip has just recently, you've, you and your family just moved from the outskirts of Paris to the, the 10th arrondissement, which is the 5th. Yeah, there you go. But I'm going to let you, you want to explain a little bit about what you're doing in yeah, Paris yeah, yeah. and why we're giving you money every month? For sure, yeah, yeah. So um, we moved into the 5th in Paris, the 5th. Um, so Paris is divided into 20 districts. It starts in the centre <coughs> and goes out like a snail, like this. So you've got the 1st, the 2nd, the 3rd, the 4th, then you cross the river and you're into the 5th, which is where we live, and then the 6th, the 7th, cross back the river, 8th, 9th, 10th. Across back over 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, and across. Anyway, we're in the 5th, which is right in the centre of Paris. It's where all the universities are. So if you've been to Paris and you've seen the Sorbonne, you've been right beside our house. Um, Theo, when he looks out his bedroom window, sees the Sorbonne uh, in, his, uh, in his window. Um, it's got the Assas, it's got the big lycée, it's got all the kind of the students kind of congregate there. And so the idea is that there's no church that serves that area uh, in particular. And so there's a church in the 7th, which is also on the left bank, of the Seine, and we are attending that church at the minute that church asked us to join them in order to plant this new church in the fifth arrondissement of Paris. And so we've just moved in there. Um, and when you guys heard about it, Andrew said, we'd love to support you, we'd love to kind of get alongside you. And so you guys have been sending us money since September, I believe. Um, and it's really, really appreciated. Um, we love the fact that we're linked with you in mission. And so some of your kind of pounds that go into the offerings here end up in Paris. Um, as we try to plant a church that will reach many Parisians uh, with the good news of the gospel. So thank you for that support. It's really good to be in solidarity with you in that mission. And, and just before I pray for you, uh, can you tell us why, why, why you go to Paris? What's the need like there? So the, Paris is a wonderful city. If you've been to Paris, you know that it's a wonderful city. France is a wonderful country. If you've been to France, you know that too. Um, it's a, an amazing place. Uh, in the Reformation back in the 16th century, we reckon that about half of France's population had believed the gospel and had um, started to worship God according to um, uh, what we believe, even justification by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. France was on its way to becoming the kind of the leading nation, if you like, um, of true gospel faith. Um, then there was persecution. Um, the Huguenots were chased away um, on the night of St. Bartholomew. Um, many Protestants were killed in Paris um, in streets not that far from where we live. And there was a big persecution of what we would regard as true Christian faith um, that happened in France. And the Reformation was more or less snuffed out, um, despite Calvin being French, despite the French foreign church being um, a big presence in in France. um, Persecution led to the almost crushing or or disappearing of of true gospel faith in France. And since then, I reckon um, there's been a big presence of the Catholic Church. And as you know, the Catholic Church is a mixed bag, and, and you'll have people who will be true believers within the Catholic Church for sure. Um, but people don't really have access or, or easy access to the message that we believe sets people free, the message of uh, salvation by faith through grace alone um, that sets us on a sure footing before God, assurance of our salvation uh, and so on and so forth. Um, we reckon there's about 1% of the French population that believes that message. Um, and so it's very hard for the average French person uh, to hear or meet somebody who could explain and live out the gospel. Um, and so we think that that's something that we need to do something about. Uh, and so that's why we're in France trying to do something about it. 
Great. Um, and then finally, just how can we be praying for you and your family and the church plant? Great. Well, so Rachel and I are there in Paris with Theo, who's 14, and Zoe, who's 11. We live kind of in the same flat. Um, the three big girls, they've uh, moved out. They're 22, Julia, she's in Oxford. Anna's 21, she's in Nottingham. And Abigail is 19, she's in Dublin at the minute, although she's back to join us next year. Um, so just for us that, that we would be people who would believe the gospel, live the gospel out, and then that we would take step by step the right direction uh, to establishing this church uh, in the coming months and years. Great, thanks Philip. I'm going to pray for you before you come and preach, mm-hmm. um, and uh, let's just keep remembering uh, the church. Does your church have a name? Not yet. Not yet, okay. So send your suggestions to Philip. <laughs> Only good suggestions. <laughs> well, normally what, what, what they do, so the church we currently attend is called the Sevres Street Church. So churches in Paris, generally speaking, just have the name of the street that they're in. Um, so there's kind of lots of examples of that. And so until we would find a location, if we were going to follow that pattern, right. we wouldn't know what to call the church. We could call it just the Cinquième or Sorbonne or that you know, Latin Quarter, that kind of thing, yeah. which would be possible. Um, but we don't know yet for sure where it's going to be, so we're just going to hold okay. off. Well, the Lord knows, so we'll pray. Uh, Let me pray for you. Uh, Father, we want to thank you for Philip and for Rachel and for their family. We want to thank you for uh, your faithfulness to them over the years, um, how they've seen you blessing them over and over and over again, that you've been faithful to provide for them. We thank you, Lord, um, that you've uh, just been with them this last year, taking this step to move um, into the city or or into the the middle of... uh, the city of Paris. Father, we pray that you just bless them, that, that many people would hear the gospel and believe the gospel. Many people will be raised from death to life in Christ because of their faithfulness to your calling. We thank you um, that uh, your spirit is at work in Paris. Uh, Lord, um, we just pray for that city. We pray for your kingdom to come there. And we pray for Philip now, as Barbara's already prayed. Uh, we pray that you would uh, Open Philip's mouth and fill it with your words for us this morning. Give us receptive hearts to hear uh, the message of Jesus and and, uh, transform us, Lord, more into the likeness of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Great. So it's great to be here. Um, If you've got your Bibles, it would be great to have them open at Psalm 98. And in fact, it'd be really great to have a Bible as opposed to have a, a mobile phone at this point because Psalms 96, 97, 98 form a sort of triptych and they're in the Bible all together. And I'm going to be referring back to Psalm 96, 97 at some points. So if you've got your Bible, that would be great. I'm going to start off with a, a story, a personal story. I think it might have been around Christmas time, but I'm not sure about the date. But uh, I used to share a room with my brother, Stephen. He was two years older than me, still is two years older than me. He would be uh, in the bunk bed, and I would be in the bunk bed too. <clears throat> I think I had the bottom bunk, and he had the top bunk, although I could be kind of mixing that up. But one evening, we hear at the bottom of the stairs the voice of our father. Philip and Stephen, come down. So craftily, I pretended to be asleep, stayed asleep, asleep. And Stephen, who's more honest and uh, kind of a better kind of behaved person, than I am, he got down and went down the stairs and uh, was downstairs for quite some time. And later on, he came back up the stairs and so he got back into bed and uh, I whispered to him, what happened? And Stephen whispered back, I got a hot chocolate and cake. (laughs) To this day, that is my biggest regret. (laughs) 
of my whole life. I thought my dad was going to punish me. I thought my dad was against me. I thought he wasn't for me. I thought he didn't want my joy. I thought he wanted my sadness. I stayed in bed and I missed out. That story is really, I think, what most people think about God. They think that God is out to get them. They think that God is against them, that God essentially wants to punish them, wants to exclude them, uh, wants to take their joy away. And so people like me, they lie quietly in bed, pretending to be asleep, hoping that nobody will notice them. Uh, and they miss out on actually what God wants for people. He wants to give them joy. Um, and that might be just something that speaks to somebody this morning. You've been neglecting the message of the Bible. You've been neglecting God. You've been saying to yourself, I don't want to go anywhere near God because in my past or the impression that I've got as I've hung around with religious people has been that, in fact, God is against me and that God is essentially a God who gives laws and punishes people who break them. Um, and that is not something that I can cope with. It's not something I want. Um, I'd, rather much, I'd much rather just lie in my bed and hopefully get through life without causing too many waves. And, and you don't get out of your bed. You don't go down the stairs. And you don't actually meet the God that you're afraid of, meet the God that you've got all these impressions about, um, and you don't actually get to see what his heart is for human beings like you and me, and so you miss out on the joy that he wants to give you. Now, I'm going to come to the application right now, and then I'm going to try to justify the application in the rest of my talk, but essentially what I'm asking everybody here to do is to stop doing that, to stop resisting the call of God on your life, um, to make this morning the morning that you will say yes to God, the morning that you will say yes to Jesus, the morning you'll say yes to Christmas, essentially, that you'll say yes to the joy that God wants to offer you on his terms, um, because we don't come to God with our terms, we, we come to God on his terms, as we'll see. But essentially what I'm wanting people to do is to see in the, in the Bible this morning the wonderful joy that God offers us and to say yes. Um, so that's what I hope will happen. And if it does happen at some point during the sermon, at the end or in the middle or even right now. The important thing would be that you would tell somebody on the way out, um, probably the pastor, uh, Andrew, or the person you came with, so that you'll not kind of miss out on what to do next. Um, um, I missed out on chocolate and uh, hot chocolate and cake and stuff. Um, and it was a small tragedy, but it's a massive tragedy to miss out on what God is offering us in Jesus Christ. So um, we've had the, the psalm read for us. And essentially, I'm dividing the psalm into two parts, verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 to 9. And in verses 1 to 3, what I want to point out is that the Lord has acted in history. God has acted in history. And then in verses 5 to 9, we're going to see that the Lord God will act again in history. And we're caught in the middle of those two truths. God has acted and God will act. And we are right here. And it's what the Advent season is all about. It's about Realizing that those two things are true simultaneously and that what we are experiencing as human beings is as much to do with what God has done in the past as it is to do with what God will do in the future. But to ignore either of those is to miss out on what God is doing in the world, in history, for the cosmos and for you personally as an individual. Um, and I want everybody to get in on that and to understand that so that they can live what it means to be a human being to the fullest potential. Because that's what happens when you come into contact with this God who created us, you realize what it means to be a human being. And instead of having the unbearable weight and responsibility of making it up as you go along, you get to receive an identity as a human being created and redeemed by God. 
and you're able to live that out joyously and without any complex in the real world that we live in. So let's look at verses 1 to 3. I'm going to read them out again, and then I'm going to show you how God has acted in history. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And you see just straight away that as the psalmist sings, as he kind of gets into his his poem, and poetry is a mode, by the way, that I think is, is particularly useful for expressing joy. Uh, poetry lets us express those kinds of things in a way that prose doesn't really allow us to do in the same way, but he, he, he says, oh. And so the oh, the exclamation is, is already like the psalmist can't believe what he's about to tell us. He can't believe the theme that he's about to address himself to. Um, the oh is the human heart leaping in joy, if you like, uh, as it comes to what God has done. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. What are the marvelous things that the psalmist might have been thinking about? We don't know exactly at what stage this psalm was written. We know the later date that it could have been written, and I'll come to that in a second. But as the psalmist writes, as he sings, and as he invites the people around him to sing, what is he thinking about when he's saying marvelous things? What are the marvelous things that God has done that might inspire in somebody a new song? A brand new melody, a brand new rhythm, brand new words for a new song to talk about the marvelous things that God has done. What, what might those things be? And I think we've got clues all around us in the Old Testament. For example, the Exodus might be a great place to look for a marvelous thing that God has done. A marvelous thing that would create a new song. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. You know what happened in the Exodus, so in chapter one of Exodus, we find the people being oppressed by the mighty Egyptian. Pharaoh makes them work with basically nothing and with no materials and expects massive things of them. And the people are suffering under the servitude and the slavery in Egypt. And then God, through 10 plagues, sets them free. If you've got your Bibles, turn back with me to Exodus chapter 15. And you'll see what happens as the people realize what's happened in the Exodus. Moses himself leads the people in a brand new song because God has done something marvelous. And even in this song, we'll find echoes of Psalm 98. For example, in uh, Exodus chapter 15, verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Moses singing a new song about what God has done to the Egyptians and to the Pharaoh. Let me read again Psalm 98. His right hand his holy arm, have worked salvation for him. It's a marvelous thing, the Exodus, to bring a people out of Egypt from the greatest superpower of the day, to bring them to freedom, to bring them to worship God, to serve him in a new place and in a new way. It's a marvelous thing. And in Exodus 15, verse 13, Moses sings about the steadfast love that motivated God to act on behalf of the Israel. And again, when we get to Psalm 98, it's because of his steadfast love that he remembered in verse 3 that he's acted. 
So he's done a marvelous thing. And this marvelous thing that he's done makes the psalmist say, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, a brand new song. Let's make a new song because he's done something marvelous. And that something marvelous could well have been the Exodus, an excellent starting point to think about the marvelous things that God has done because God has acted in history. God always acts in history. He has always acted in history. And there's always something new, so to speak, that we can say, God has done this. That provokes in us, inspires in us joy and a new song. And so what happened at the Exodus? The people are set free from slavery. They're set free so that they can worship and serve God. Can you hear an echo of Christmas? What God is doing in the incarnation is he's setting us free from sin and darkness and slavery. Setting us free to worship him burden and truth. He's inviting us into a new experience of what it means to be in relation with the living God. Sing to the Lord. But not just the Exodus, but all the way through the Old Testament, you could pick anybody out at any point in the timeline of Israel's history and say, what new thing has God done? And the person would be able to say, ah, God has done this. So at the Exodus, it's the Exodus itself, it's the uh, flight from Egypt. And maybe at Jericho, it would have been the falling of Jericho's walls. And maybe at different points in the conquest, it would have been a different city, a different village, a different people that have been subjugated by the Israel army as it moved through the territory. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. He's done marvelous things. And at a particular point in Israel's history, the marvelous thing that God had just done was bring the ark back from foreign soil. Do you remember that time when the ark of the Lord, for those of you who are kind of foreign to this, let me explain what I'm talking about. The ark of the Lord was the place where God promised to dwell. And it was kind of a mobile um, religious center. And it was put first of all in the tabernacle and then later on in Israel's history into the temple. Um, the ark of the Lord had the Ten Commandments in it. It had the staff of iron in it. It had some manna in it. It was kind of was a, a condensed representation of everything that God was for the people. It was kind of his presence, his salvation, visibly made uh, visible to people in the Ark of the Covenant. It was covered with gold. It was a marvelous uh, thing. And the Philistines captured it and took it off to their own country. The Philistines were the great enemy of the people of Israel at the time of the conquest. And so the Ark was away in a foreign land. And symbolically, God had abandoned his people. Symbolically, God was far away. He was no longer present. And then, through the word of God and through obedience to God, finally the ark was brought back into the promised land, into the land of Israel. And that's recounted in Kings, but it's also recounted in Chronicles. So you've got your Bible. Go with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, the ark of the covenant representing the salvation of God, representing the presence of God, is brought back into the land. And what is fascinating about this is that as the chronicler recounts the return of the Ark of the Covenant to the people of Israel, they sing Psalms 96, 97, and kind of 98 as well, but the, kind of the, the themes of these three Psalms are there. So the ark returns in chapter 16, verses 1 to 7, and then chapter 16, verse 8, David starts a song of thanks. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. 
make known his deeds among the people. And that's kind of a, a summary of Psalms 96, 97, 98. But all the way through, if you read those Psalms, if you read uh, 1 Chronicles 16, you'll see all the echoes, all the quotations from these Psalms. God has done a marvelous thing. He has come back to his people. The Lord has come. Can you hear the echoes of Christmas? Jesus is more than the Ark, the Covenant. Jesus is more than the presence of God symbolically. Jesus is God himself coming. And, and so the coming of Jesus should make us say, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. There are Christian theologians, that, and I think I agree with them, who would contend that the incarnation is the most marvelous thing that God has ever accomplished. Now, that's a big statement, isn't it? But the incarnation being the most marvelous thing that God has ever accomplished, I think that makes sense. Because without the incarnation, there is no perfect life. Without the incarnation, there is no perfect death. Without the incarnation, there is no resurrection. Without the incarnation, there is no man in heaven. Without the incarnation, there's no return of Christ. Without the incarnation, there's no resurrection of the body. Without the incarnation, there's nothing left of our salvation. But with the incarnation, when God becomes flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that is a thing that is so marvelous that it needs to provoke in us a new song. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. The ark has come back for his people. Jesus is born. God made flesh. God with us, Emmanuel forever. He's done marvelous things. God's presence with his people. And so we can see how this psalm is exactly the right kind of psalm to sing, to think on, to meditate at the time of Christmas because everything that we've said so far is redolent of Christmas. Those of Christmas all the way through. Because in fact, and this is an important point to understand Christmas is telling the story of how God acted in history at a particular time. But it's making that point in the context of a larger sweep of history because God always acts in history in the same kinds of ways and for the same reasons. Christmas might be the high point of that. It might be the most marvelous thing that God has done. But it's just like all the other marvelous things that God has always done through history. And it's just like all the other marvelous things that God will do God is always acting in the same way and for the same reasons in history for us and for his glory. Of course, there's progression. Of course, there's deeper elevation. Of course, every new act is more marvelous than the last. But there's a deep continuity because God is always doing what he's doing for his glory and for the salvation of humanity. And it leads us to this deep, deep joy that we see in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. I don't know if you know much about French theology, um, French theologians. You definitely know this person, Pascal. Have you heard of Pascal? Yeah, if you've done any maths in school at any time, thanks to Pascal, you, you've done it better than you would have done if Pascal hadn't existed. Pascal was a fascinating person. Pascal invented, and I've learned this quite recently, um, public transport. So he was the first person in Paris to suggest uh, a, a kind of a, a public transport system. He created and invented many, many things. He died when he was 39, very young. 
but, but he changed maths, he changed physics, um, he wrote the famous Pensée, um, uh, and he was an, an astonishing character uh, in every way. But Pascal had a, a conversion experience um, that is uh, well attested in history. And how we know about this conversion experience is really interesting because Pascal wore a coat, and in the coat, uh, he had sewed into the lining of a coat his testimony. So if anybody has here been, ha uh, there's a baptism three weeks ago here, is that right? Is the person who was baptized here? Yeah, she is right there. Okay, good job. Um, and that, that the testimony that you gave that day and you were baptized, Pascal took the equivalent of his testimony and sewed it into his coat. And when he died, they found inside his coat his testimony that was sewn into it. Let me read to you a bit of Pascal's testimony. It's also known as the Night of Fire. Uh, if you look it up on, on Google, you'll find it under that kind of title. The Year of Grace, 1654. Monday, 23rd of November. Feast of St. Clement, Pope and Martyr, and others in the Martyrology. Vigil of St. Somebody I can't pronounce. Martyr and others. And then this is what he says. From about half past ten at night until about half past midnight. For two hours, this is what he experienced. And the first word in capital letters, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel, the grandeur of the human heart. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. As Pascal came into contact with the God of the gospel, he discovered the joy that we're talking about in this psalm. The God that is discovered in Jesus Christ, come in the flesh and to die for us. This God then provokes joy in us, singing because he's done marvellous things. God's act in history lead us to deep joy. But as we go through this psalm, we see that God's act in history are also sovereign and independent. Look at verse 1, the end of verse 1. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Who does what God does? God alone. Unaided, unhelped. Sovereign, independent, majestic, powerful. Do you see the, the personal pronouns in that verse? His right hand, his holy arm, have worked salvation for him. God does what he does by himself, unaided, unhelped, sovereignly, independently, and for his own glory. We, we need to get that as human beings. And in fact, that is the most peaceful thing, the most reassuring thing, the most liberating thing we can ever hear. God does what he does by himself for his glory. And that is our greatest good. That is our greatest certainty, our greatest assurance. We are not responsible for the world. You are not responsible even for your own salvation. God has taken responsibility. His right arm, his right hand, for him, he is at work. 
If I'm a Christian today, it's not because I'm cleverer than everybody else. It's not because I'm better than everybody else. It's not because I'm luckier than everybody else. It's because God in his grace, by his right hand and by his right holy arm, worked salvation for himself in me. That's great news. It means you don't have to be good enough because you can't be good enough. It means that you can be saved. Anybody can be saved because God works in history, in my personal history and in the history of the world in a sovereign, independent, glorious, unopposable way. And those works in history that he accomplishes are universal in scope. Do you see that? Verse 2, in the sight of the nations. Verse 3, all the ends of the earth. Everything that God does is tending towards that end. He will be God in all the earth. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God intends to make universal kingship and lordship the end point of all history. Jesus will be Lord, as we read in Philippians chapter 2. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Sing to the Lord a new song, because what he has done is universal in scope and will come to pass. And his acts in history are revealed by his word. See that in verse 2? This is why um, Village Belfast spends so much time every Sunday morning and throughout the week focusing on God's word. Because God has saved people, he's acted in history, but the only way we know about that is through the word of God. Look at verse, chapter, or, no, look at verse 2. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. God's word does God's work. I remember one time I was listening to somebody do a seminar, and the seminar had for kind of its theme um, evangelism in Muslim countries. I was just describing how people from a Muslim background became Christians. And if you're from a Muslim background, I hope this is helpful to you. Um, but from any background, it works. And he's saying that, that for somebody from a Muslim background to become a Christian, it's really a, 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 an amazing thing because you're asking somebody to change their identity completely. And he said, there's two things that are necessary for that to happen. And everybody in the room who was there got out their pencil and little book because they thought this is important. Two things that need to happen. So, like good students. And he said, first thing is a relationship of love and confidence. And then the second thing he said is the Bible in their hands. I looked at my notes and I thought, how does anybody anywhere become a Christian? How does anyone anywhere Come to know the Lord through relationships with the people of God, of love and confidence. And the Word of God doing its work in the only way it can. Because the Word of God does the work in people's hearts. It's not my words, it's God's words that save. And God has made known his salvation through his word. He has revealed his righteousness through his word. And that's how God uses word to save people. And all of these things are rooted in God's steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. God is motivated from eternity by love and faithfulness and for his glory. God has acted. 
And then the gap between verses 3 and 4 is the gap between God's past acts in history and God's future anticipated acts in history. God will act again. And at this point, I want to kind of give you a sermon within a sermon, but don't worry, it's not going to be long. Because when I'm thinking about Christmas, when I'm thinking about Advent, when I'm thinking about this wait that people had for Jesus to come, and the wait that we have for Jesus to come again, my mind goes to Simeon in Luke chapter 2. And when I read this passage that uh, Andrew asked me to preach on, I had just been asked to preach on Simeon in Luke 2 in another church. And when I read this story, I hope you'll hear as I did, all the similarities between what Simeon experienced and what the psalm is all about. So, sermon within a sermon. Go with me to Luke chapter 2, and then we'll get back to Psalm 98 in a minute. So, Luke chapter 2, and it's this, the story where Simeon meets the Lord Jesus. Poor Theo, he was with me uh, in this church where I preached this in French last week, and he's now here with me to hear it a second time in a different church with another sermon around about it. Unlucky Theo. So Jesus is presented at the temple, um, and uh, then Simeon comes. So Luke chapter 2, and we'll read from verses 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You see the insistence that Luke has on the law of the Lord. And we'll come back to this in the end of Psalm 98. The law of the Lord creates a problem for people because the law of the Lord says, this is what you must do, and this is the punishment if you don't do it. And so Luke is insisting on the fact that Jesus comes to fulfill the law. Jesus comes to fulfill the law both passively and actively. He comes to fulfill the law passively in that he takes the punishment for our inability and unwillingness to fulfill the law. And he comes to fulfill the law positively, actively, by doing everything that the law says. Luke says that in these first three verses. Jesus comes to fulfill the law actively and passively for us and on our behalf. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, said that when the knife came to circumcise Jesus, Jesus' blood began to flow at that point for us. It's a very vivid way of saying that Jesus came. And when he came, he came under the law to fulfill the law for us. Everything the law requires, positively and negatively, Jesus suffers and does for us on our behalf. And so he circumcised and named Jesus. And after that introduction where Luke says Jesus comes to fulfill the law for us, we see that Jesus comes to fulfill all the promises for us too. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation Simeon had read Psalm 98. Simeon knew that he was to sing a new song because the Lord had acted in the past to do marvelous things. But Simeon was longing for God to act again in history. He knew that there was a promise there that was yet unfulfilled, the promise of the Messiah to come. He was longing for that day. He was longing for the consolation. He was on his tippy toes, peering into the future wanting it to happen, dying for it to happen. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, who was to come, the consolation of Israel, God's next act in history. 
And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've preferred in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Waiting for this next marvelous deed. And when he saw Jesus, he knew that this was God. He was waiting, and God acted in history Calvin says that we must embrace Christ with both our arms. Simeon, when he sees Jesus, he takes him up and he takes him in his two arms and he says, now I can depart in peace because my eyes have seen the salvation in this baby boy. And full joy and full satisfaction, he was ready to die because he'd seen Jesus. You're only ready to die when you've seen Jesus for who he embraced him with your both arms and taken him to your heart. You're ready to die and you're ready to live. He was waiting for God to act. God acted in the person of Jesus and he said, now you can let your servant go in peace. Because the salvation that he'd worked had come to all nations. It was a marvelous thing. It was glory for people of Israel. It was glory for the Gentiles. It was wonderful. Simeon had seen. He was in that gap between verse 3 and verse 4, and he saw God act again in history. I was um, reading the Bible with a, a new Christian um, a few weeks back, and I was really startled by what he said to me, because he was reading about joy, uh, and the theme of this whole Advent series is about joy. And he said to me, I was wondering, as I read, I'm not sure which verse it was he was reading, if Jesus is my joy, or if Jesus contributes to my joy. So profound. He hasn't been a Christian for very long, but already he's asking that question, which is a question that I've asked myself ever since. Is Jesus my joy, or does Jesus contribute to my joy? All the difference in the world is there. Is Jesus an accessory that I've added on to my life that in other ways is just totally indistinguishable from the life of every other person who lives in Paris or Belfast? But Jesus adds a little a cherry on the top, if you like. Or is Jesus my joy in that he's come into my life as the ultimate horizon for everything that I do? Simeon, it was the ultimate horizon. My eyes have seen the salvation. Therefore, I can die. I'm ready to go. My whole life was waiting for and pointing towards this point in history when Jesus would come. Is my whole life pointing towards that point? Is my whole life devoted to that? Is my joy coming principally from that? Or is my Christian faith the socially acceptable way of being religious today? Is it something that brings me comfort on the edge of my life? Jesus is my joy? Or is he contributing to my joy? For Simeon, it was first three words. 
Because Simeon was living in that gap between verse 3 and verse 4 of Psalm 98, waiting and anticipating and longing for God to act again in history. Let's go back to Psalm 98, and we'll finish off. Because once the psalmist has talked about the marvelous things that God has done in, in history past, he then makes us think about what God will do next. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets, the sound of the horn. Make joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The Lord has acted in history. He has done marvelous things. The Lord will act again in history. He will do marvelous things. What are we waiting for right now in the gap between verses 3 and verses 4 of this psalm on this side of Christmas, on this side of the incarnation, on this side of the crucifixion, on this side of the the resurrection, on this side of the ascension, on this side of the reign of Jesus from heaven? What we're waiting for is exactly what it says in verse 9. We're waiting for the Lord to return, to come and to judge the earth with righteousness and the peoples with equity. We're waiting for that. He is coming. And here's the problem. Because if we really want the Lord to come again, then we need to be prepared for him to judge not just the world, but us. Not just the peoples, but us individually with righteousness and with equity. He is coming to judge the living and the dead. All my deeds, all my thoughts, all my words, everything about me will be revealed before him. Is that a subject for me for joy or for dread and fear? For you, is it a subject of joy that the Lord should come and judge with equity and righteousness? Or are you scared stiff? As you lie in your bed, as you hear the voice, come down. Are you too scared to be judged? Willing to walk down stairs and go to heaven? And the only way that you can hope and find joy in the idea that God will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity is if you have repented and believed. If you've seen what Simeon saw, you've seen the baby Jesus coming to obey the law actively and actively, to take the punishment for your sin, to live the perfect life that you couldn't live. And as you put your faith in him, to be united with him forever, if you have done that, then you can say and sing, I hope it comes soon. I'm ready for the Lord to come and judge the world with equity and with righteousness because I've put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who by his incarnation was able through his crucifixion and his resurrection to deal with the problem of sin and judgment for us. So, the Lord has acted in history. And he will act in history. And the next big thing he's going to do is Jesus to come back. I want everybody to look forward to that with joy and with confidence. I want everybody to be able to sing about that with all their heart because they've accepted 
what Jesus has done for us in his incarnation, in his crucifixion, resurrection. Let me pray for you all. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Lord, we don't meditate enough on the marvelous things that you've done. We don't make those things as we should, the center of our existence. Lord, forgive us because we've made you an accessory. Forgive us because we've made you things that are referee to our life and vision. Forgive us because we've made other ambitions the central ambitions of our life. Forgive us because we've feared you as a God who judges us and wants our ill instead of loving you as a God who wants our good. Lord, help us this Christmas time. Look back at what you did at Christmas. as a marvelous thing. Look forward to what you will do when Jesus returns again as a marvelous thing.